Welcome to the Third Growth Option Podcast, where we talk with business leaders and innovators hungry to drive growth that can be faster than internal organic growth and less risky than acquisition. Your moderator is Bernal Dunkerspula, Chief Sherpa and CEO at Realign, who has led private equity-owned distributors through turnarounds and growth. With battle-proven leaders from all frontiers, we want to provoke thinking about business growth beyond conventional wisdom and binary choices. Hey, I'm Benno with Cliff Farah today, founder and CEO of the Beacon Group, growth consulting firm for the Fortune 500. And uh, Cliff, you're also the author of Growing the Top Line, which is an awesome book. You're the dad of a, to a future Olympian. One, one uh, would hope, uh, Benno, wait. one hopes. Welcome to Third Growth Option Podcast, Cliff. Thanks. Uh, appreciate you having me on board today. So let's just dive in. Uh, this book that you wrote, thank you so much for, for sending it to me with a lovely note on the inside cover. I read it cover to cover. And, you know, in, in my day job as chief Sherpa of Realign Expansion Sherpas, you know, we help mid-sized companies add seven, eight-figure revenue streams. So our companies do very similar work, but you're doing it for... Fortune 50, Fortune 500 companies, so a few orders of magnitude bigger. But I can vouch for you know the the approach that you're describing, very very similar to ours. Uh, change a couple words. So wh- where do you want to start? Maybe what was your favorite part of of writing this book? Uh, shockingly, it was being able to sit down uh, at night. Long enough <laughs> at night, right dur- during my my wife and uh, kids who were all home uh, due to COVID while I wrote the book were amazingly patient with me as I, as I spent evenings in my office and um, really got a chance to think and, and share how I thought about, you know, the development of growth strategy. So the writing process itself was a heck of a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do it again. Maybe you'll write another one. But, I, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed were the stories and, you know, the descriptions of people in your sphere, you know, uh, network, friends, colleagues, that, you know, how you describe those folks and how, you know, the, the wisdom, you know, their wisdoms that you're sharing with the reader. I, I bet you just reconnecting with people in a very intentional way was must have been a lot of fun as well. It was, you know, the, the vast majority of the people who are in the book are clients of mine and the the others are you know people who have achieved things I've respected and I was lucky enough to get them to participate in the book but you're right I I am an incredibly fortunate person in that I get to work with well it's funny you call yourself a sherpa I I, I always say look I, I want to work with clients who can climb the mountain mm-hmm. but don't want to live at the top you know, so good humans who are responsible for driving growth in their companies and keeping people employed and creating new jobs and all the good stuff that gets me fired up about what I do. So talk a little bit about, you know, you describe in the book the ideal growth team. You started going down that path a little bit and just talking about people who want to climb the mountain but maybe not live up there. What, what is sort of the makeup of an ideal growth team? Well, there are two pieces to it, in my opinion, and, and, and in our experience. One is it's multifunctional. Very rarely is good growth strategy developed by an individual. It's generally developed best by a team. 
when you think about executing, I think in the in the book I talk a little bit about the the fifty x rule, which is the number of people you count you count the number of people who are involved in building the strategy and you multiply that by fifty. And for our clients, that's really about the number of folks it will take to be committed to your ideas uh, for them to be real. And so one way that you, you don't guarantee success, but you avoid an awful lot of misstep is by involving the different functional leads of a business. So of course there's the strategy arm, but there's also sales because these are the folks who are gonna be compensated to go out and sell whatever it is you decide to bring to market. HR, which is a shocker for most people because we're in we're in an incredibly constrained market environment today. And every time you come up with uh, an idea, there's a person that has to execute on that. And rarely, in my experience, are those people always in-house. That you know, Generally, if you're adding workload, you're going to have to add people uh, or you're going to have to take something off their plate, right? So that's typical. Then, then you get into operations, the people who have to build it, you know, the, what I call the veto functions, the ones who, you know, you create a great strategy and, and uh, you brief it to them and uh, they, they say, nope, you know, it's too, too risky for the company. That's legal. Or, hey, you know, this doesn't have the right kind of return on investment for us. That's finance. So legal and finance are the two veto functions. And so we try to engage them early and in a way that makes them good collaborators. We want a bit of discord on the team, but we want it to be healthy. So, so that's the second piece of healthy tension. Yeah, I think you can find some people who are, who are just not going to get on board. You're toxic. People who are, are so resistant to new ideas or change or, or um, you know, disruption to their world that they, in fact, become a drag on the process. And what I write about in the book and, and I have experienced in my life because I, you know, in consulting, I started doing a lot of process work back in the day with A.T. Kearney. And there was a lot of change management involved in that. And, and one of the things you learn quickly in that environment is that it's, it's good for people who are critical consumers of what you have to offer to be engaged early and right. for them to voice their concerns and your skepticism and really in a way that allows you enough time to address those issues. And so that's good. We want that. We don't, we don't want everyone nodding their heads just because the consultant said it or the strategist said it. But by the same token, you don't want someone saying no because the consultant said it or the strategist said it, right? You want open-minded thinkers to be part of the process. So that's generally what you look for in, in a good team. And um, if you get the right team, I think the odds of success and, and, and the amount of progress you're, you're able to make is, is really fantastic. So there's the, the, the multifunctional, cross-functional, the uh, left brain, right brain mixed. I think that naturally comes out of having different functions sitting around the table. And then you also talk about the today and tomorrow, right? It's, it's hard to find a person that can live in the, in the today world of executing and in the tomorrow world of sort of strategizing. But you do believe it's important to have both a today perspective and a tomorrow perspective on the team, maybe different people. Yeah, I think all team members are, are capable of thinking in both current and future terms. One of the benefits of the strategy development process, I, I believe, is it's not a continuous thing. You know, it's, it's something you do once a year, 
you revisit it once a year and it gives you a chance to really break out of the day to day and think about the bigger picture. And so that's part of our job is to give people the freedom and room to be futurists at some level and, and, uh, and then to stretch their thinking so that they learn more about what's possible than what might be typical in their company. When I was reading your book, I, I loved the four different pathways and the sort of the fun you were having about putting together a whole matrix between, you know, the four different pathways. And then with each of them, uh, you, you have a, a new avenue or a current customer or current product avenue. Tell me a little bit about that framework. Yeah. So the frame, I wrote the framework to teach my consultants how to think about the development of a growth strategy. And, you know, one of the, and you know this, right? One of, one of the biggest challenges we have as strategists is that we can, we can come up with any idea we want, right? You can literally do anything to drive growth. So, so how do you bound that? How do you make sure you've considered everything and you do it in a way that leads to an actionable Right, the right mountain. Yeah, right, right. You know, and then the right trail up the mountain. Right, there are a million right. ways you can climb a mountain. How do you know you're going to get to the top? So that's what the that's what the framework does. Is it is it structures the challenge of growth along four questions? Uh, those four questions are the ones that, based on my experience and research, they are the they are the most important questions to consider as you develop strategy. And then once you go through that process, where you've work through the four fundamental growth questions, then you get into the arm wrestling of strategy and tactic to achieve growth. But yeah, it's so it was it was originally intended just to be a training tool. And, and then I started to share it with my clients to show them how we thought about the development of growth strategy. And our clients at the firm, you know, they run six to $12 billion global businesses. They have tens of thousands of employees, and they really, really liked how consistent and rigorous the model was. And they, and they especially liked the process we employ to help develop strategies. And, and so it, it led to not only requests for us to teach their teams how we think about strategy, but also you know, interest in a book. And so that's what led to uh, the book that you just read. Consistent and rigorous approach to growth. I think that I think that is that's probably one of the things that I I really enjoyed about the book. That you have a you know you have a, a process, you have a framework to think about what is the right mountain to climb or the right trail up the mountain, as you just said. But then you also sort of bring it home by 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 putting guardrails around it, so it doesn't become too too pie in the sky and, you know, hey, we can do anything. We can climb Mount Everest and Kilimanjaro on the same day, and it, wouldn't it be great? So you, you put, you know, this financial accountability around a growth strategy. Talk about that a little bit and how that differentiates consultants' BS. <laughs> well, you know, when you get into strategy, especially growth strategy, I yeah. think people's eyes tend to glaze over or they think it's going to be this very squishy, fluffy thing. And our opinion, the best way to develop a strategy is to know the goal, right? You have to know the goal you're trying to reach. And that goal has economic components to it and it has uh, timing components, right? We're going to 
we're going to make this much money at this much profit in this time frame. Well, if you know that and you know the investment profile of the company and the hurdle rates that they use to drive investment, then you can figure out how much money you have to spend to achieve the goal. And when you start to push actual math onto strategy, and, and you know what's nice about our approach is we, we feel like we can predict fairly accurately what kind of revenue we're going to drive from that, um, you know, from that effort, that then, then we can quickly flunk a whole bunch of pie in the sky things that are either unnecessary or impossible to afford as you try to execute strategy. So, so one of the nice things about our approach and the, and the framework, it's eye-opening for people how little risk they generally have to absorb to achieve their goal and how many foolish things they could do that look cool or, you know, they're sexy, but, but they don't, you know, pay the bills and we're right. all about paying the bills and making profit. So that's, that's really our guiding principle. And that's why I always recommend to our clients that, hey, let us do a, a financial forecast. You know, if we think we can add $10 million or if you're working with a Fortune 50, maybe it's $10 billion, I don't know. But I also want to show to the client that if we can add $10 million at the same or different gross margin than their core business, how much expense would be a reasonable number to invest to get that $10 million of revenue, right? And I find that that is a way to solidify a growth plan because now you can make sure that it doesn't get starved by not enough. You know, um, you know, somebody might say, what do you mean spend, you know, a million dollars? And I'm like, well, you know, you're going to make $4 million of gross margin. I think it's worth it. Yeah. And, and that spend the million dollars and the example you were talking about, what's nice about how we approach it is that number is not coming from the consultant from beacon it's right. coming from your ops team right? right this is what it will cost for us to do it so it has an awful lot of credibility and and finance is building the model and finance is defending you know the economics of the strategy so it, it you know that those are little things but they have big impact on people's willingness to listen and and then execute on strategy and that's a really good point. Sort of going back to the earlier conversation around, you know, who should be in the room when building a growth strategy. And, and you talked about multifunctional and left brain, right brain, operations, finance, legal, HR, sales. I mean, this includes a group of people that, that folks don't necessarily equate with putting a growth strategy together. But having them either help with the financial forecast on the expense side or the, the, the revenue and margin side, or at least, you know, give input or, or, or give feedback, not only makes the financial forecast, you know, more airtight, but also there's a, a greater deal of buy-in, which then creates much higher chance of execution success, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I think you're right. The, the other thing that's important, too, is that all of this is not happening in a vacuum. So there are strategies from prior years that are in execution mode right now that we could potentially disrupt. And that team of leaders knows about it, right? They know what they're trying to do. They know what they've invested in. So again, rather than coming up with a, a really cool idea or, gee, this would be really interesting as a strategy, they can look at it and say, but to do it, we either need this many new heads or 
we have to take this initiative off the table that may be actually yielding some return at that point. So it's it's right. just a very pragmatic way to think through what what it's going to take to succeed. So we're we're recording this in 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 November 2021, uh, 18, 19, 20 months into COVID. In what ways have you gotten smart in the last 20 months? Oh, have I gotten smart? Well, I've gotten humble. <laughs> That's a form of intelligence. <laughs> I think we have all lived through a period of time that no one could have fully thought through the ramifications of the pandemic. Sure. And one of the interesting things for our firm was how the the cycle of of need from our client base manifested as we worked through the pandemic. And I, I will tell you that at the beginning of 2020 was brutal for us, right? We we were doing everything we could do to Uh, keep the ship afloat and and really protect our employees and be good humans to one another. And then as we got to the midpoint of the year and 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 later, things got really busy for us. And they've, you know, knock wood, they've they've stayed very busy for us. And I think what we learned is that keeping your eyes on the market, making sure you understand the dynamics of your of your client's world you know, trying to game out the ways the pandemic is, is, is going to impact a vast number of things. Like I'll give you, I'll give you one that everyone's sort of aware of, which is supply chain, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone it's, it's, it's terribly disrupted. It's going to continue to be that way for quite a while, we think. And so companies are trying to adjust to that. The, the other thing though, is we're in the middle of a people crisis right now. 750,000 Americans died in the pandemic so far, right? Right. A good number of those were professionals. And so that workforce has, has essentially been removed. And as an economist, you know, we had a lot of, you know, there's a lot of mortality data. There's, there's, there's lots of census information. We know, we've known for a while that this period of time we're in right now would have a shrinking Uh, workforce, but we didn't predict the pandemic. So as bad as it was already going to be, because you know we have an aging population, people are retiring, the pandemic has both taken away employees through death and it's driven early retirement for people who are just sick of it, right? They don't right. want to, they don't want to deal with it. So so I I think we're going to see that constrained market condition continue to happen. And that's really driving an, an increase in the, in the role of HR, both in the strategy development and execution side of things. So we're, we're, paying, we're paying a lot of attention to that. And then on the other hand, so, sort of the flip side of you know, a, a tight labor market for a multitude of reasons, including the pandemic, I have seen the labor market in a way, I mean, th th there is one way in which the labor market has become larger, and that is people used to maybe consider their labor market to be, you know, 50 mile radius of the office. And now they're looking at all 50 states or they're looking at all 200 countries around the world as the labor market. I mean, it, it used to be, you know, un until 20 months ago, I've been in this business for a dozen years. And for the first dozen years, 
whenever we talked to a client who was, you know, more than say a hundred miles outside of Cincinnati or outside of Mexico City where we opened a second office, mm -hmm. huh? people were like, you know, the prospective client said, Yeah, but how 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 is that gonna work? You you know, you you're you guys are so far from where we are. And I'm like, don't worry about it. We have clients in, you know, in, in China, in Vietnam, in Spain, in the Czech Republic. <laughs> It'll be just fine. Today, for the last 20 months, our business is booming as well because people are much more open to attracting re talent remotely. Are you finding that as well? Yeah, no, I think that's true. And what we've pivoted to uh, with our remote workforce, it was actually a fairly seamless pivot from a practitioner standpoint, right, of delivering the work. We've got Teams, we've got SharePoint, we yeah. uh, we, we know how to collaborate, we're, we're, we're using our, our tools, our, our technical tools to collaborate well. What I think you lose, and it's one of the things I love most about Beacon, the firm, is that, is that we, are, we are a group of great colleagues. There's very little toxicity. It's It's extraordinarily collaborative. It's a very healthy work environment. That culture really sort of saw us through the early stages of the pandemic. And now that we're we're adding, you know, more resourcing, struggle a lot with how to how to onboard people in a way that makes them a part of this magic of of this right. of this place called Beacon. And that gets more and more difficult the more remote you are. So I think there are some operational challenges to maintaining culture in our profession, right, in the services world in particular, is, is very difficult to do. And, and as we continue to have a, a more geographically dispersed workforce, that's not something that's going to go away. I agree. The old uh, happy hour on Zoom uh, has, has worn out its welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I was liter we're literally talking about our holiday party this year and whether or not we were going to do it virtually or try to get everyone together. And uh, in case the firm's listening right now, uh, we will do virtual. Also, an another sort, you know, flip side of the coin again here. I started this podcast in the summer of 2020 because I was racking my brain How do I stay connected with, you know, people in my industry? I, I would, you know, before COVID, I would go to trade shows a couple times. Uh, you know, there's biannual trade shows and I travel a lot to do the face-to-face -face thing. And I'm like, oh, all of this went away. I can't shake hands and kiss babies. You know, oh, you know what am I going to do? So I started the podcast and without COVID, I would not have met you, Cliff, Right. Uh, without COVID, I, uh, you know, I would not have reconnected with people that have been in my network for, you know, maybe 20, 30 years. But the podcast has created an avenue for connection that is very different from a water cooler co conversation. I think that's right. And it's, we have done a lot of work as a firm helping our clients think through new ways to engage with their customers especially during the thick of the pandemic, T take healthcare, for example, very, very difficult for a medical device rep to get time with the doc if the hospital is overflowing with uh, pandemic patients and they just don't have time for you. So how do you do that? How do you stay relevant? How do you prove value? And, and that's true in every industry, right? I mean, uh, def right. the defense industry, meet and greet, is critical. It's at, it's at the core of everything. Tech industry, industrials, to always conferences. Everyone's always, you know, hanging out at conferences, getting to know one another. So I think what's happened is that these new media have 
resulted. And one of my favorite things as a you know a leader of a, of a services firm that we do get as a benefit is I, I get to go in your house. You know, it's right. very rare that a that a client invites you to their house, but I'm in That's my right. client's house every day. And it's led to some really great conversations and some more insight about people. And I enjoy that. I appreciate that. Final question, because this, this has been a, a great conversation and great stuff coming out of it. Is there sort of a piece of advice that you find yourself giving to top executives over and over again? Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a capitalist, right? So I'm, I'm constantly reminding senior execs in, in some of the leading firms in the world to try to monetize what they do which probably sounds surprising, right? Because what I'm saying is charge for your value. And mm -hmm. when you work with large scale companies that have been around for a long time, they're very resistant to being perceived as too money motivated, right? Mm -hmm. yep. but, but what happens is markets develop around them and those markets charge for services that they might provide to their clients for free. And it leads them to a, a marginalization of their role in, in the market. And so, I don't know, this may, may be a little too nuanced, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm constantly reminding people that what they do is valuable and, and they, shouldn't, they shouldn't shy away from trying to monetize that value. That's a great piece of advice. And it's the kind of advice that comes typically from an outsider more easily than from an insider, because the insider kind of takes it for granted. Wow, that's not... A Everybody knows that. Well, no, not everybody knows that. You should charge for it, right? Yep, that's right. If folks wanted to uh, reach out to you one-on-one, -on -one, what's the best way for them to, to find you? Do you want, I don't know, website address or? The firm is uh, The Beacon Group, and we're at beacongroupconsulting.com. Uh, you can reach out uh, there, or you, or you can go to the book's website, which is growingthetopline.com, and both of them have uh, contact information. Excellent. Thank you so much for jumping on on this episode uh, i really enjoyed it i enjoyed it as well and i i uh, i really appreciate the perspective you have on growth and i enjoyed uh, sharing mine as well thank you hey if folks wanted to explore other growth topics you can find me on our website realignforresults.com or just email benno b-e-n-n-o at realignforresults.com thanks for listening until next time keep growing You can listen to more episodes on Apple, Spotify, or Google. We would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review it. Share it with your friends or colleagues if you enjoyed the content. Always growing.